I visited Japan a while back. Spent some time in Tokyo, although I really fell in love with Osaka, the grimier cousin with better street food. Anyway, I'm no authority on Japanese architecture, obviously. I'm not going to bore you with my ignorant opinions, but there was one thing which really stood out to me. Underground shopping malls are everywhere. Shopping malls in general are all over Tokyo. It's an incredibly dense city, so I suppose that makes sense, but the verticality of the place was incredible. I always felt like I was sandwiched between five or six different levels of people and things, shifting back and forth over each other like a gigantic marble run. Honestly, it gave me the big city fear for the first time in forever. I felt like a caged animal, constantly scanning for the badly signposted exits and yearning for a little patch of sky. There's an underground shopping mall in the town I grew up in, the Jubilee Centre. It was built sometime in the 70s and is really more of a long, corridor-like parade running underneath the old town centre than a full-on mall. The town itself was already suffering from most of the premium retail moving to a large out-of-town shopping campus a mile or two away, but the shops in the Jubilee have always been down market, even for an already failing shopping district. A couple of pound stores, a mobile phone unlocking stand, and one of those cheap clothing shops that also sells bongs for some reason, all evenly spaced out between a dozen or so empty storefronts. It always kept bizarre hours, closing way earlier than anything else in town, no matter what time of year it was. I once saw them pulling down the shutters at 2pm on a clear October Saturday, the security guy glancing worriedly at the sky as though he was expecting it to fall in, before pulling his coat around him and hurrying off. It seemed so strange at the time. Since my cousin Mitch told me about his time underground, though, I think I've started to understand a little of what he was afraid of. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. When I was a kid, I was terrified of shopping malls. An abiding early memory for me is getting separated from my parents when a shopping centre I was in found a suspicious package and they had to evacuate. That memory looms strong in my subconscious, even though I'm almost certain I'm misremembering events one way or another since I was so young at the time. I know it was hugely overstated by the media, but I really remember the various bombing campaigns that were taking place across the country when I was a kid seeming like a constant lurking threat. Not necessarily a mortal one, but definitely one that would make me cry and cling to my parents. That sense of paranoia, fostered by rapid media speculation, meant that shopping mall culture, a staple of the American suburban fantasy, had a much more stuttering, uncomfortable start in the UK. Even putting aside the fact that we don't have exactly the same car dependency America does, a central part of the whole experience, the early development of shopping malls in this country often saw them uncomfortably appended onto existing town centres, more covered shopping arcades than large-scale malls. The formalisation and redevelopment of market stores, the steady privatisation of public space, much to the chagrin of everyone involved. The combination of 90s bomb scare paranoia and opposition to gentrification meant that, 
a lot of them stood empty for years, irregularly guarded and much less profitable than their owners had hoped. I had an older cousin though, who took full advantage of this in-between stage of shopping mall development. He was part of an underground rave crew, and I use the word crew there in the strictest sense. From my impression of them, it was mostly a bunch of sound system nerds who had found a way to make their hobby attractive to girls. My cousin Mitch had always loved being part of the technical team on theatre productions in secondary school, and the work he did for the 90s party scene was really just an outcropping of that. He dressed like stage crew at basically all times, black on black with a mag light and a multi-tool strapped to his waist. And even though he loved music and went raving almost every weekend, I'm pretty sure he spent most of his time on the technical stuff, keeping the electricity running and monitoring the police radio scanner to avoid getting raided. I need to pause for a moment and let you know that Mitch was, to me, literally the coolest person in the entire universe. Not only did he go out to cool adult parties in his wizzy little 90s fiesta, he also had a bunch of keyboards and music gear kicking around which he'd let me play with. Sometimes he'd record mixtapes for me, at my insistence, which were usually a strange combination of jungle, hard house, and 70s electro psychedelia for some reason. He'd had a rough childhood, bouncing between foster homes for a bit until my aunt and uncle took him in at 13, and he dropped out of school three years later to work in a music studio, which led him, eventually, to the rave scene. He knew about the deserted underground shopping parade in my hometown. Hell, he knew about every covered shopping parade in and around the city. And he had spare keys for most of them, slipped to him by a minimum wage janitor or a board guy who worked at Woolworths. There is bread and butter for rave locations. Well insulated, plug points everywhere, multiple exits, white clean floors, even public toilets sometimes. They park up a couple vans nearby and start moving as soon as the door shut to the public, loading everything they needed onto pallet movers and sprinting it up through the delivery bays and parking garage entrances to avoid being seen from the road. Invites had to be passed out to their VIP list by answering phone, so they'd flip a coin at the start of each night to decide whose job it was going to be to man a nearby phone box and call the 200 or so names they collected in a big technicolor binder they called the Neon Pages. Mitch first got involved in the scene at the tail end of the 80s, but he kept at it right up until 1997. This meant he was there right the way through the moral panic about party drugs and the 1994 public order bill, which led to draconian police crackdowns against raves across the country. He still worked in the nightlife industry for a while after that, but something caused him to drop out of the illegal rave scene entirely in 1997. He didn't tell me about it for years after, but something sinister was lurking in those underground streets. Something worse than the police, worse than the drug dealers, worse than the guard dogs and private security. It all started in the Wandsworth Centre in 1995. The Wandsworth Centre was first built in 1971, directly on top of the River Wandle one of the many Thames tributaries that runs through South London. The river was culverted directly underneath the 110 shops in the complex, and at the time, it was seen as a bit of an engineering marvel. While all of the shops were above ground, there was, and remains, a large utility space underneath it, 
hollowed out next to the culvert to manage river overspill. This had sat empty and unused, however, since the completion of the Thames Barrier in 1982, which had successfully prevented the type of catastrophic tidal flooding this area was designed to handle. By the early 90s, the Wandsworth Centre had acquired a reputation for being run down, as most of the upmarket shops had moved away to newer shopping malls in wealthier locations. In its earlier days, there had been talk of converting the underground area into a covered market or an area for independent traders, but it never managed to get beyond laying down some cheap tiled flooring and installing strip lights overhead, making the place feel like a shopping mall had collided with the nuclear bunker. Sheer concrete walls contrasted with that beige, teal and dusty rose tile work pattern which haunts my subconscious as the defining element of shopping centre chic. Mitch and his crew loved the Wandsworth Centre for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was run down enough that it was easy to sneak into, and nobody really cared what they did in there. Secondly, the basement had amazing acoustics while also being relatively soundproof, so they didn't have to deal with noise complaints. Thirdly though, and Mitch's personal favourite aspect of it, was that the underground overspill area they used was actually accessible by dinghy or canoe from just upstream which allowed them to set the meeting point for invitees a little ways away and then sneak them in from below, almost invisible to anyone at street level. They'd used the place to organise multi-day parties on several occasions, with the crew sleeping in shifts at a nearby hotel to keep it going, relying on the shambolic management upstairs, not noticing the stream of ketted-out ravers sneaking up to use the staff toilets in the maintenance area. they needn't have worried too much. Long before rave culture started crawling in through the cracks in capitalism's megachurches, the Wandsworth Centre had felt like a site where the barriers between alternate presents were thin. The departure of the anchor shops, the industry term for the big department stores which formed the backbone of any major mall, coincided with an increase in unexplained events reported by staff and shoppers. Firstly, a series of fly tips were found in a secluded corner of the food court, and when they opened up the rubbish bags, they found them full of branded food containers for a pancake place called Dave's Blinis, a brand which, obviously, has never existed, let alone operated in dumping distance of the Wandsworth Centre. After that came the disorientation. This symptom was harder to track, but Maintenance staff and shop workers started to get lost inside the mall. It's really not that huge a place, but some reported walking for hours past endless, repeating rows of shops, desperately trying to find an exit, but unable to reach out to anyone else in the mall. This was mostly logged in attendance records, when they were disciplined for arriving late for shifts, but CCTV from the front of one of the electronic shops does show the same employee passing it, going in the same direction, seven times in a row on a busy Saturday afternoon. Finally, there was the issue with the escalators. Customers kept getting on the escalators on the first floor, riding down one story, and yet somehow finding themselves in the basement, instead of on the ground floor as expected. This was the most serious issue yet, as far as management were concerned, 
Since the basement was technically off-limits to customers and only accessible by a back staircase through the maintenance area, nonetheless, it happened frequently enough that they started leaving the door propped open with signage directing people to the exit. It was through one of these prop doors in 1995 that Mitch first discovered the underground part of the Wandsworth Centre, and which made it a regular fixture on the rave circuit for the next two years. These incidents were actually much more common than they might sound. In the course of researching this episode, I discovered five different shopping streets, all with an underground element which reported similar time-space anomalies at around this time. My cousin Mitch knew all about these anomalies, used to call them portents, and he kept track of them in a table in the back of the neon pages. I want to take a quick moment to talk about researching this episode. Shopping centres are a tough one to research because they're designed to exist in the perpetual now. They usually don't have a section on their website dedicated to the history of the place, and many of them work hard to actively scrub old pictures from the web. They're both the centre of attention and completely invisible, and something about that has always terrified me on a primal level. It might just be that I read No Logo a little too young, but walking through a covered shopping mall always makes me feel paranoid, guarded, fighty, honestly. It's the exact opposite set of emotions to those which they set out to make you feel, but the calculated cynicism of every design choice is anathema to what I enjoy about cities. Clean floors to keep your eyes up and on the merchandise, temperature regulated to make you comfortable, help desks and maps, wide open spaces so nobody can lurk, bright lights and soothing music. I like my city with a little bit of lurking though. I like alleys, I like broken paving slabs, I like potholes and puddles and chipped brickwork, I like strong crosswinds, busted pavements, rain and snow and tattered posters for circuses that left town three weeks ago, and tipped over bins and overgrown planters and crumbling facades and discarded kebabs and all the messy detritus that keeps a place alive. I've memorised the crisscross scar tissue of replaced tarmac along the road I walk between my flat and the tube. In all its uneven, mismatched glory, the roots of a colossal street tree protruding through it a couple of metres from my door. I adore it. It's beautiful to me. I hate walking through the sterile digestive system in the belly of these huge machines of capitalism, at all times visible and monitored and clean and digitised. It feels like living in the cancelled future, prospects deleted, no weeds growing through the cracks in the pavement, a one-way cultural transfer that buries me and everything I love beneath it. Part of what drew my cousin Mitch to shopping malls as a venue in the first place was, beyond the convenience, it felt like an opportunity to talk back to a culture which was trying to destroy him. It was part of that 90s wave of end-of-history cultural resistance. Folks who watched the fall of communism and were left contemplating the terrifying prospect of infinite capitalism. A better world is no longer possible, it's this or nothing. Things can only get better. But they won't. On the night of the 1st of May 1997, 
Mitch went to his final rave at the Wandsworth Centre. It was an election party, celebrating the bitter end of 18 years of Conservative government in what would turn out to be a landslide victory. Tony Blair had severed the link between the Labour Party and the unions, clearly marking himself as a much more right-wing candidate than some of the previous leaders. But he also managed to walk that magic eye line of substanceless platitudes that's been the calling card of spineless centrists right up through Obama and beyond. Obviously, the party was incredible. I've never gotten to experience an electoral win as an adult in the UK, and this one was momentous. It's impossible to overstate how unpopular Conservatives were, let alone how much damage they'd done to the country over the previous two decades. Even the dour leftists were ready to take what they could get. It was early enough in the neoliberal consensus that some of them believed they might be able to push Blair left on some issues. We all know how that ended, but I'd have been partying too, honestly. Mitch had been seeing more and more portents at events leading up to the election, logging them diligently in his little table. A flock of birds manifested outside an underground WH Smith's in Slough. A door connecting a sub-basement on Charing Cross Road to a rooftop the next street over appeared, and then abruptly disappeared after exactly seven uses. A police raid, which should have caught the whole crew in Tottenham, was held up for three hours after getting lost on what should have been a five-minute walk through the mall to get to them. Even though that last one had worked out in their favour, Mitch was uneasy, sensing the end of an era closing in around him, holding within him that spiritual malaise that accompanies the end of one type of world and the start of something new. The setup and first few hours of the party went pretty much as planned. They ferried people in via the Wandle River on rafts and canoes, from an improvised jetty a few hundred metres away, hidden between a couple of suburban houses. They actually started pretty early, at around 11pm, knowing that the police would likely be distracted by other street parties and election-related unrest elsewhere in the city. By the time John Major formally conceded at 2.30am, it was fully out of control. People were spilling in off the street via an unlocked door into the maintenance area, word of mouth spreading to every election night party in the area that the after party was on. Something about that night drew out everyone from the scene, even those who hadn't been out clubbing since before Thatcher was in power, from street druids to acid burnouts to ex-miners to ageing hippies, all drawn together in one glorious moment of celebration, united in the hope for a brighter future. Then the cops turned up. It was 5.27am. The DJ had just dropped the 11-minute cut of global communication, The Way, for about the third time that night. And although that might sound like they were getting lazy, I should stress that everyone was out their fucking mind on Molly, so they were, obviously, losing it. Mitch tells me that the place had a real old-school rave feeling, from back before everything became about superstar DJs performing on stage at the front. The DJ was down in the crowd, part of the party, rather than the focus. There was a guy on stilts, a group in one corner spray-painting an elaborate mural on the concrete, a couple of fire dancers, and someone had bought a dozen beanbags and a parachute which had been set up as an improvised chill-out area in a different corner of the wide-open basement. To hear him tell it, this was the last hurrah, the high-water mark, of everything they'd been doing throughout the entire Conservative government. 
a real collaborative space. A party for the freaks and the outcasts and those who have been kicked so hard and so long that the moment-to-moment safety you feel in the crowd at a really good gig was like surfacing for oxygen after years underwater. Mitch didn't have much interest in the party drugs associated with the scene. He really was more interested in tech than psychonautics, but he'd had a few drinks that night, clearly. Why shouldn't he? They had plenty to celebrate, and he figured that he deserved a night off as much as anyone. That explains why he wasn't listening to the police scanner when the riot vans turned up. Gas mask cops poured in through the utility entrance just as the song finished. Mitch was stood over near the back, so he got a good view of the whole thing. They didn't ask any questions or make demands to disperse. They just started beating people indiscriminately. It was almost comic. Dozens, maybe hundreds of huge guys in riot pads, struggling to fit through the doorway single file before fanning out like an oil slick across the dance floor catching anyone too zoned out or inattentive to run and laying into them three or four at a time. At the far side of the room, over by the culvert, people were throwing themselves into boats and dinghies, trying desperately to get away, while a fog of CS gas wafted towards them. People who, seconds before, had been peacefully celebrating, were now leaping into the freezing, dirty river water, trying to swim against the current to avoid being washed out into the Thames. It was chaos. That was when Mitch noticed the door. It had appeared in a corner of the improvised chill-out tent, which was at that moment in the middle of being torn down by a group of cops who were resolutely refusing to chill out. The door was big, ornate, inviting. Mitch immediately knew it was important, but he figured it was safer in there than out here. Gabriel, by Roy Davis Jr., started blasting through the rapidly failing sound system as he grabbed the neon pages and sprinted towards it. A police officer reached out to grab him, nearly catching his sleeve, but he managed to duck through and slam the door shut behind him at the last possible second. Darkness. Silence. A minute or so of profound disorientation. He felt around in the dark, but there was nothing. Whatever door he came through was no longer there. Then... Music. The sound of electropop wheezing out of tinny speakers somewhere in the distance, echoing like a tunnel. Light began to wash back into the scene. It felt like his eyes were adjusting to the darkness, but... This space was brighter than the one he'd just left, so that didn't quite make sense. Clean, pastel, tiled floors below him, shops either side. A smooth, white ceiling. Embedded strip lights, humming softly. A shopping mall. Mitch figured he'd been transported upstairs at first, but this place wasn't quite right. The shops were all shuttered, and they had names he didn't recognise. More accurately, names he couldn't even read. They weren't in a different language, necessarily. His eyes just slid off them whenever he tried to look too close. It was also 
atmospherically quiet, if that makes sense. Like, there was noise, but it all felt a little dampened, ever-present, impossible to locate, as though it was coming from everywhere all at once, but nowhere specific. The music felt like something was pushing into his ears, like the pressure change you get in your sinuses when an aeroplane takes off. With nowhere else to go, he started walking. The mall stretched out a long way ahead of him, but it was built on a slight crescent-like curve, so he could never see too far ahead. The shops on either side were stacked together strangely too. There were none of the normal little tunnels off from the main drag leading to the toilets or the car parks. Mitch stared straight ahead as he walked, trying to avoid the signs advertising sales and the posters for discount clothing which all felt strangely familiar and yet completely alien to him. He kept his eyeline on the middle distance, looking for an exit, or a window, or daylight. The multi-tool on his waist clicked against his belt buckle with each step, but he didn't try to turn around to break into one of the shops. A sense of futility overwhelmed the place, emptied itself into him, and carved through his technical mind like molten steel through an ice cube. I could tell you he walked and walked, searching fruitlessly for the exit. I could describe to you the three days he spent underground, furiously death-marching alone through the clean endlessness. I could describe how, the further he walked, the more he became aware that he was trapped in a huge spiral, gradually turning in on itself, undifferentiated, without exit, without opportunity and without change. But you know all that already. He knew all that the moment he walked through the door. The inevitability devoured him. Mitch thought that night was the end of something. And in a way, it was. But the further he walked, in the endless shopping mall, the more he realised that what had come to an end, the main error whose high watermark he'd experienced in a tunnel beneath the Wandsworth Centre, was the concept of endings themselves. The collective unconscious was turning a corner on a long, slow curve towards a world which could only ever get worse, more inhospitable, less capable of dealing with the radical change needed to save itself. It's just an endless parade, an eternal recursion, where you walk or you die. Mitch never escaped that place in his mind. After three days of walking without food or rest, he just blinked and found himself back above ground, somewhere near Streatham, with the sun in his eyes. Everyone assumed he'd been arrested, maybe kicked around by the cops, but something fundamental broke in him that day. When he got home, he packed up everything he owned, which after the raid, wasn't actually that much, and went travelling, looking for something new. I don't think he ever found it. 
He works at Tesco now, which he hates very much, but it keeps him off the street. I asked him about the portents, and he told me he hadn't seen any in years. His theory is they were some last rupture of change, an extinction burst of creativity and weirdness in the final moments before the world ended. A warning, maybe. He might be right. A door has started growing in the wall of my flat. I can trace the outline with my fingers, just barely visible to the naked eye, but it's definitely there. I started leaving things in front of it. Little drawings, bits of food, a tube of hand sanitizer. Whatever feels right. They disappear in the night, while I'm asleep. I hope it opens soon. I don't know how much further I can walk. next episode of Subterraneans, Crypts, Churches, and Monuments. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter, or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app, since it really helps getting my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, behind the scenes info from five pounds a month that's patreon.com forward slash subtopod special thanks to my 10 pound and above subscribers Hiran and alex who are the water and the well drink full and descend thanks for listening